Welcome. You're listening to Living Faith Podcast. Starry sky and see your hand in time and mind to lead me through the night. When we speak of John, we will often speak of him as John the Revelator. And some have thought, well, that's because he wrote the book of Revelation. No, that identifies a gifting within John. Of course, he had to have a gift of revelation in order to be able to write the book or the revelation of Jesus Christ. So knowing that he is a revelator, when I read not only revelation but his epistles and I read his gospels, I'm looking at what John is telling me is a greater revelation of Jesus Christ. Something is deeper than what you can see on the surface here in this text. Now, I I think that um, traditionally we would have two questions that we would immediately ask when we read this text. And the first of all, I believe, is very obvious. And the question we would have here is, what in the world did Jesus write on the ground? (laughs) Because it seemed to turn the very tide of the situation. And some theologians, and I've heard preachers preach for for generations, and and, uh, I've heard this and read this in books that are very old, and some say that, well, Jesus was writing on the ground the very sins and mistakes of the scribes and Pharisees that brought this woman to be judged. That could be true, but it's a guess. (laughs) Because the scripture doesn't tell us and their guess is as good as yours. Some have told me that what Jesus wrote on the ground must have been, where is the man? Because if she's caught in the very act of adultery, it takes two to tango. Where's the man caught in the very act? Or even where's the woman? Sure. So it is A guess because the scripture does not let us know specifically what he wrote on the ground. My opinion is that he's writing nothing. I think he's doodling, (laughs) drawing stick figures and cosines and absentmindedly. Because in context, we see that he's trying to act like he's ignoring them. They're pressing him for an answer. Give us an answer. Give us an answer. And he just turns his back and and stoops down the ground and writes like he don't even hear what they're saying. So my opinion, good as anybody's, I suppose, is he's doodling. The second question that demands to be answered here is can Jesus arbitrarily decide that he's not going to follow law, he's going to show mercy? Is he setting a principle here that grace is a higher principle or level of the kingdom than righteousness or law? Is he just ignoring today and tomorrow he'll go back? How can he somehow put one seemingly above the other? Our world is very confused about who God is. Because if you ask the uh, normal individual on the street, Christian or not, most people will say, who is God? Well, God is love. And that is true. But that's not all God is. God is also righteous. And he is holy. And he is perfect in all of his ways. 
So it's very important to see that John is doing more here than telling us a tremendous story of mercy. But there's revelation that we can grasp if we will look into the Word of God. So I began to accent some words as I was reading this text on purpose, hoping that they would just click a little bit in your mind. Words like law, accuse, convicted, accusers, condemn, condemned. I hope that you hear these words and think, wow, this sounds like a courtroom scene. This is legal verbiage. These are words that you would hear from an attorney, a lawyer, a judge of the law. Exactly what John is wanting us to see here. That this is more than a great story of mercy. It is a legal procedure that is happening. So, let's set the scene. It's Act 1 at this courtroom. And these scribes and Pharisees bring this woman allegedly caught in the very act of adultery. And they set her in the midst. That's like bringing her front and center to the courtroom. She's on trial. They put her before the judge's desk. They set her in the midst. They quickly began to declare... That the law that would operate in this procedure was the law of God given by Moses. Or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament that we can read in our Bible. And they said, by this law, you are going to judge her. But they make Jesus the judge. And let me show you how they do this. They specifically call him master. Now, in this context, it's not speaking of a master-servant type of master. It's talking about one that has mastered the law. We would call him lawyer or judge in our world today, one that studies the law, gives himself to know the law, can judge the law. And they put him in this position and say, you're a master of the law, so judge for us today. This woman's caught in the very act. They have already decided what should happen in this courtroom. Because they say, Moses' law says she should be stoned, but really we wanted you to judge her. Will you follow the law or will you not? And so this courtroom seemingly has put Jesus into a corner because their intent is not just to judge this woman, but they are trying to tempt or judge Jesus. Because either way he goes, they think that they can destroy his ministry. They believe he has one of two choices. He can choose the law or he can choose grace. He can choose the righteousness or he can choose mercy. And either one he chooses will destroy his ministry. If he says, you know what guys, that's exactly what the law of Moses says. Okay. Let's take her out and put her to death. Then they will say to him, then what good is all of your beatitude message? What is all this new commandment I've given to you that you love one another? Because you believe the old law just like we do. You've got no new covenant, no new teaching. You've got no new word to speak. So no one should even listen to you because you even defile the Sabbath. But you believe the law. And if he goes the other way and says, well, I think we should show her mercy. Then they'll say, no one should follow you. You should disciple nobody because you are lawless. You are unrighteous. You do not believe God's law. 
So they think they have him backed into a corner, his hand twisted behind his back, and whatever he says is going to destroy his ministry. But in these situations, Jesus will not let his ministry to be destroyed, but it's an opportunity for those who are hunger to receive revelation. So back to this courtroom scene. Jesus must somehow make a choice. Will he choose law or will he choose this mercy, this grace? But I have to make a statement as I'm preaching today. That truth can stand up to every temptation. It can stand up to every trial. It is truth all the time or it is not truth whatsoever at all. That truth is the answer for every generation, for the generation of this woman and for the generation we live in today or it's just not truth. So what is this truth that I speak so boldly about? John himself makes it clear in the 17th chapter and the 17th verse of his gospel when he declares what Jesus is saying. Thy word is truth, O God. So you want to know what will stand up to every trial, every temptation, what is relevant for every generation, the answer for every situation, what is truth all the time or not truth at all. It is the word of God. You can stand on the infallible truth of the word of God. But then we find something very interesting because it's the same gospel, John, that says this in verse 14 and 6. It says, quoting Jesus, I am the way, the, uh-oh, and the life. So maybe there's a dichotomy, a, a failure, a mistake, because in just a matter of a couple of chapters, it's the word that is truth. And then we find Jesus saying, I'm the truth. So which one is right? Has the scripture got a problem here? Of course not. The answer is both of them are right. This is why in the foundation of his gospel, John 1 and 1, he begins with this revelation and understanding. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All right, now look just a few verses further in verse 14. He's talking about the word that is God that was in the beginning. And now he says, and the word was made flesh. When did that happen? That's happened when Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem's manger. That the word that was God became flesh, verse 14, and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. The glory of the only begotten of the Father. But look at this. Full of grace and truth. You see, there's a phenomena that happened when Jesus Christ was born. No longer do you have to choose law or mercy. But in Jesus Christ, he's full of both. No longer do you have to choose righteousness or grace. Because in Jesus Christ, he is full of grace and full of truth. This is the revelation that this text is trying to tell us. Yes, God is love, but he is also righteous and holy and pure. You cannot separate Jesus from the Word. 
I've heard some church make this a statement, and admittedly, I'm going to make an assumption. I've heard some churches say, well, we are, we're a word church. And I'm assuming, hopefully wrong, but I'm assuming that what they're meaning by that is that we put a lot of emphasis on the word of God and maybe not so much on the moving of the spirit. How ignorant. Because you cannot separate the word from the spirit. It's one and the same. By the same token, I've heard some say, well, we're a spirit-led church. And I'm assuming they mean we really want the spirit to move among us. And it doesn't really matter so much what the word of God says. Just as ignorant. Because you cannot separate Jesus from his word. It is one and it is the same. So understanding that, looking back at our particular story here, we find that it is impossible for Jesus to choose law and ignore mercy. He's full of both. It would be impossible for him to choose grace and ignore righteousness. He's full of grace and truth. He cannot ignore who he is. So here's the story. They are demanding that Jesus, who is a master of the law, will judge this woman. And Jesus makes an interesting move that repositions himself in this courtroom. He stoops down and writes on the ground. I'm likening that today into dismissing himself from the judge's desk. He lets them know real quick, I'm not here to judge this woman. But instead of staying behind the judge's desk, he stoops down to the defender lawyer table. He becomes her public defender so that he will fight for her. This is his action of stooping down and right on the ground. Let me prove that to you. Again, in John's Gospel, chapter 12, verse 47, Jesus said, I am come not to judge, but to save. Now, here's the qualification. Verse 48, the next verse. The word that I have spoken will judge you in the last day. He's saying there will come a time at the end of man's time Kind's time when all men great and small will stand before that great white throne judgment to be judged and he will open the books and begin to judge mankind for their works and for their actions according to what is written in the books but not today that's the end of time he's saying there will come a time I will be judged but not yet right now I'm her advocate I'm her defending lawyer I will fight for her that's the position that Jesus has in this generation it's still the position that he has today he has not come to condemn anybody in this place he has come to save every one of us he's not here to judge us and somehow strike us with lightning he's here to bless us and to save us he's here to fight for us And so he's stooping down on the ground. I think perhaps if they had a little wisdom, the scribes and Pharisees would have seen that he put his finger to the dust. Maybe a clue there that all have been made of dust, that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It would not be wise to come with your hypocritical attitudes of somehow judging others, which is never why. They didn't get a clue, though, when he put his finger to the dust. And so they press him. Give us an answer. Come on, judge her. They still think they have him backed into a corner. And finally, Jesus lifts himself up as her defending attorney. And he makes his opening and his closing statement with one sentence. My God, I wish lawyers were even half this smart today. 
He stands up and makes this one statement. He that's without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Now, that's a powerful statement, but he's not just saying, come on, guys, have a little mercy today. He's not saying only, come on, people have made mistakes, even you have, and maybe we should show mercy. But what he is doing is quoting the law. He is going right back to the Pentateuch. The law of God given by Moses that they demand that he judge them by. And he's taking a direct quote from that law, just like lawyers should. I'm not picking on lawyers. I just, I just feel like that's a good statement, just like lawyers should. And when he makes this statement, then he stoops down again. So it is absolutely a truth that the law says that someone caught in adultery is in sin. That's one of the Ten Commandments. The Seventh Commandment says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. It's clear as it can be. Leviticus 20 and 10, part of that law, declares that the penalty for those caught in the act of adultery should be death. You can't get around that. That's the law. You can't ignore that. Adultery is sin. The penalty according to that law is death. Moses' law declares, Deuteronomy 17 and 6, that for sins worthy of death, like in this situation according to the law, there must be two or three eyewitnesses. Very important here. Deuteronomy 17 and 7 declares that the witnesses are to be the first ones to pick up stones and put to death the guilty. There is the quotation that Jesus used. Now, let me set this up for you. The law said those caught in adultery should be put to death, but before you can put them to death on trial, there has to be two or three eyewitnesses, all right? Now, our founding fathers in North America set up our civil and judicial law system with a strong, strong background and foundation of the Word of God. It's a good reason why we've been blessed in a lot of ways in our nation. Of course, until we're starting to forget about God. But this civil and judicial line has been followed pretty good with the witnesses and stuff. But there's some parts of the law that have become so watered down. And that's indeed the law of witnessing. Because in our courts today, the laws are stricter. But if you perjure yourself in court, you get on the witness stand and you lie, you might receive a reprimand from the judge. He might slap your hand. He can fine you if it's a high-profile case. You might spend a couple of nights in prison, but, but the judgment just seems to be so small for lying on the stand. But it's much different in the law of Moses because you had to be so sure as an eyewitness that you are testifying that individual. I saw them with my own eyes. I'm an eyewitness. They committed this act. Then if they're convicted, you have to pick up stones and take their life. That, that's kind of amount to us today, testifying and then flipping the switch when they're convicted and they die. Locking the doors where they never come out to society again. That it's more than just an eyewitness account of testifying. It's our willingness that we're so sure that what we saw, we're willing to exact the judgment if they're convicted, even our own self. But it even goes further than that. Because there is a powerful law here that you'll find in Deuteronomy 19 and 19. False witness. 
The false witness should receive the same death penalty they wish to put upon the one they witness against falsely. I know maybe you didn't catch that at first. But the penalty for being a false witness is whatever penalty you're trying to put on this one by lying about them now comes on you. So it's more than just, well, I'm going to lie about them and, and you know, if, I, if they're not convicted, I'm just going to go free. No, if you lie about them and they're not convicted, now you're on trial for false witness. And just as strong as there should not be any adultery, the ninth commandment says, thou shalt not bear false witness. Just as strong. Because a witness and a testimony is very powerful in the kingdom of God. In fact, this principle that in the mouth of two or three witnesses every word be established is not just Old Testament, but it is absolutely New Testament. In fact, it is kingdom-wide. It is a principle that if you want something to be legally binding, it needs to be in the mouth of two or three witnesses. And then it becomes legally binding. Things that are bound in earth are bound in heaven because the mouth of two or three eyewitnesses. <laughs> Legally binding. So here we see a switch in the situation because what we know of the scribes and Pharisees comes into play here. Jesus had the hardest time with these scribes and Pharisees. He said that they were, they looked good on the outside like they were real religious. But on the inside, they, they're full of dead men's bones. The way that Jesus says it in the gospel is, is that you're whitened sepulchers, graveyards full of dead men's bones. He was saying this in identification. You look good. Your religion looks good on the outside, but you don't have anything on the inside. As we would say today, there's no love. There's no Christian character. There's no morality of your heart. Oh, you don't go to the wrong places and you try to do the right thing, but there's nothing in your heart. But even they celebrated this. They loved that, that their religion was everything they did and they didn't do, had nothing to do with their heart because they wrote volumes of what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Only walk this far because after that it's work and you're violating the Sabbath. Only carry this so much, but, and they did that. So it is not only who Jesus described them as, but it is obvious in history that this is what they celebrated. So knowing that, it becomes obvious. These scribes and Pharisees would not have been caught dead viewing an adultery because it would have made them unclean and sinful according to their own belief. They would not have been in some place of ill repute to watch this kind of action happen because they themselves would become guilty and sinful. So it's obvious what we know of the Pharisees and also specifically by this law that Jesus brings out that these scribes and Pharisees did not see this. But rather it's hearsay. I have it on good word from somebody I have great confidence in. This woman caught in the very act of adultery. And so they testified based on whatever they thought was righteous and they really didn't see it with their own eyes. Or perhaps they thought everybody knows this woman's t reputation. She's loosey-goosey, easy-peasy, and 
Surely everyone's going to believe that she was caught in the very act of adultery. Regardless of how they somehow justified themselves, it's obvious according to this law that Jesus brings out as the lawyer of this case and also the actions of what we know of these individuals that are Pharisees and scribes. They did not see it, but they are being false witnesses. So now the shoe has been moved to the other foot. The courtroom has flipped because the woman is no longer on trial. No true eyewitnesses there. However, these scribes and Pharisees are in big time trouble because they have been false witnesses. And now that they've tried to put her to death and they've lied about it, they are in danger of being stoned themselves. But Jesus does a beautiful move. Where on one side of the courtroom he's been fighting for this immoral woman. He now stoops down on the ground again. It's like he moves from one side of the courtroom to the other side of the courtroom. And he starts fighting for those who've been lying and had hypocritical and judgmental spirits. Because Jesus came to save not just the immoral. But he came to save those that were so religious that they were no longer Christians. He came to save those with perversion and those with a gossiping tongue. He came to save those that were lost in their problem of immorality and those who were hateful in their spirit. He stoops down again and positions himself to fight for these scribes and Pharisees because he didn't come to judge them but to save even them. And he is ignoring them. That is so key because he is not going to take their statements, their testimonies and their witnesses and put it on the court trial and make it something that is legally binding. But he is waiting for them to recant their statements. And they are standing there realizing Jesus just called us. We are false witnesses in this trial and according to Moses' law, we should be put to death. And they begin to realize he is just doing the same thing, delaying. He's given us a chance to retract our statement, to recant our testimony. And the, from the eldest, who is obviously one most groomed in the law, he began to realize by his own conscience, if we get a chance to have mercy here, we need to skedaddle. We need to get out of here as quick as we can. And he dropped the weapons that he brought to stone this woman, and he begins to back up from the eldest even to the last until every one of them walked away. Jesus gave them time to pull back their testimony so they would not have to be judged. Jesus still does this today. How many of us so bold and brazen with God, if you're really God, strike me dead. And if you're God, do this. And we have such terrible testimonies. And he just seemingly ignores it and doesn't put it on the courtroom history. But he waits for us to come to a place where our conscience will convict us. And then he can say, now what do you say? It's a time of mercy for you as well. Oh, God is so awesome. And so one by one, they begin to walk out and leave their weapons that they would take her life with. And finally, Jesus has waited a long time and no one is there. And he looks around and he speaks to the woman, I will not condemn thee. Go and sin no more. But Jesus is not just showing mercy here and showing grace. He's allowing this to happen legally. Because he cannot show mercy and ignore law. It's impossible. He is reaching back instead to the very law of Moses. 
And even before the law of Moses, when the earth was formed, because the scripture said from the very foundation of the world, there was a lamb that was slain for sinners. And he's reaching back to that law and the foundation of the earth. And he's saying there's a lamb that will take your place. He's reaching forward to Calvary because he's not bound by time. When he will hang on that Calvary's heel, there he will be lifted up above the earth and suspended from heaven. And he will bleed his blood for those who had made mistakes and be the Lamb of God. He's reaching back to the prophecy and forward to the future where it will happen. And he's declaring this, my testimony is that I'm the Lamb that will take the sin for you. Instead of you having to die here, woman, because of the actions of your presumed adultery, I will die for you. But there is something else that needs to happen because we have well established that it's the mouth of two or three witnesses. Every word is established. And while Jesus is testifying mercy lawfully, and while he's looking to the word of God, Old Testament and New Testament, to say that there's a lamb that will take her place, we've established that's one testimony. Because the word and Jesus are just one. It's why he looks at her and gives her a question that demands that she takes the stand and speaks the power of her testimony. When he says, Woman, where are thy accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she responds with this testimony. No man, Lord. But the last word she says there is more than a term of endearment. It's a positioning, a statement of her belief when she says, there's no man that can accuse me and condemn me, but I make you Lord of my life. And because you are my Lord, I believe in you and I believe in your word. I believe that you're the Lamb of God that was slain from the foundation of the world. I believe that you'll pay my price on Calvary Hill. And when she submits herself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, it's Jesus and the Word's testimony that the law can set her free. And it's her testimony that I believe the law. I'm an eyewitness. I believe the law. And therefore, I can be set free. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. And legal binding happens for her. And she is set free because Jesus is full of grace and mercy. Yes. But he's full of truth. And he's full of righteousness. And he never ignores the law. Let me show you this, Psalms 85 and 10. The, pro, the, pro, the, po, the poet begins to speak about a prophecy of Christ. He said there's coming a time in history that will blow mankind's minds because mercy and truth will meet together. Righteousness and peace will kiss each other. He said when the coming of the Christ happens, it's going to be something phenomenal. Mercy and truth will marry Peace and righteousness will kiss each other. It won't be one or the other. It's the same in Christ Jesus. But what we need to see here today is that this is more than legal proceeding here in John chapter 8 for this woman. But this is a microcosm of everything that the New Testament is. Everything that the New Testament is. We have the Old Testament. But Jesus came as a mediator to bring in the New Testament. And by his death, his last will and testament can be established to us. Everything in the New Testament is legal procedures so that we 
can be set free from our sins and mistakes of our past. This is why you're always reading words that are very courtroom, law-type verbiage. Romans 8 and 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Powerful understanding. Words like justification, sanctification, words like law. These are all letting us understand that the New Testament plan is not a Jesus who just loves so much. He just showers, you know, sloppy mercy everywhere. He has come in the power of the law to to legally pay the price to set us free. I would even declare unto you as I'm closing today that every church service is a courtroom where heavenly, eternal, legal procedures are taking place. And this is the way it operates. You come into this place and your soul is open before heaven. And you should believe that immediately judging you and accusing you before God is your prosecuting attorney. The Bible says that Satan is an accuser of the brother. That's what he does. And just like that he went before God and accused Job and said, Job, he's not worthy of your love. He just serves you for everything he can give. And Satan is accusing a child of God. He still does the same thing every church service. And he speaks there into your spirit. And he says, there's no way you're getting a miracle today. You slipped up and made mistakes. Come on, how different are you from the last time you went to the altar and repented? He's accusing you before God. And he's trying to make in this state courtroom statements that you don't deserve to have any mercy. You don't deserve to have any grace. But by the law, you should be judged. You should be condemned. That's what you hear. That's what you fight. But as church service begins to go, it is formulated for this purpose. We begin to sing, as Pastor said, about our great God. And we sing about the law. Yeah, the New Testament law about how he loved us with the Calvary and he broke every chain that bound us and we sing about the law and what you're hearing as we're singing and worshiping is the law of God. It's the law of the kingdom. And then the preacher is sent like a lawyer to a specific word in the law and God says, I want you to preach this word of the law. And he begins to tell you exactly what you need to hear from one particular place in the law. And today, it's how powerful your testimony is. And then after you've heard the preaching, there must be a response. Because the Word and the Spirit are agreeing together to tell you that you're loved, that you have blessings, that mercy is for you, that the Spirit of God, that salvation, that healings and miracles, etc. are for you. Now you're hearing the law preached. And the Spirit begins to confirm that. You feel His love and His mercy. But that's just one testimony because the spirit and the law cannot be separated as one. It's why there's an altar service that is given at the end of the church because you need to testify what you believe. Now, Paul tells us this when he's writing to the church at Romans in chapter 10. He said, if you believe with your heart 
You need to make confession with your mouth. This is what brings you to salvation. Why? Because you can stand or sit in our courtrooms all day long and believe something strongly. It has no legal binding until you get on the trial and confess or testify. And now it's legally binding. This is what God is doing for us in church. You're hearing the law. You're feeling the spirit. Now you get an opportunity to come down to the witness stand and be a true eyewitness of what you believe. So if you truly believe, then you make confession. Now, John 3.16 tells us then, again, it's John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. We quote John 3.16 but just as powerful as John 3.17 that speaks to us about the legal confirmation of what Jesus has done for us. And so you will have a choice. And it looks like this. You come into church and that prosecuting attorney, Satan, the enemy of your soul, is saying nothing's going to happen to you today. You're just going to feel the presence of God. You're going to walk out. You don't deserve it. You've not done the right things. And he's all these accusations before heaven and before God. But you hear the law preached. God loves you. Paid a price for you. You feel the spirit of God drawing you. Now you've got to be the eyewitness and look into your heart and see what you believe. Now, if you don't believe, it doesn't matter what you confess. You're being a false witness. And if you believe, but if you believe not, you're condemned already, right? But if you believe, then you've got to be a true witness. Let, let me show you something. Pastor, can, can I use you? Just stand up with me. There is a statement in Christendom across our world that can be very powerful, but it's, it's not used properly. And it's this statement. I confess that I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. And I accept Him as Lord and Savior of my life. Something like that. I'm sorry it's not perfect, maybe like it should be. But we don't understand exactly what that is. Anyone can say that and it mean absolutely nothing. Unless it's a true eyewitness. Now, if I tell you today, I believe in this man. You know what I mean. You know I don't mean, oh, I believe he exists. <laughs> of course he exists, right? And I don't mean, oh, I, I, uh, I, I believe that he's pastor or whatever position that we might want to put. Of course he is. But if I tell you, I believe in that man, and I do. You know what I mean. You know that I mean I believe in not only this man but what he lives for. I believe in what this man's conversation is. I believe in what he dreams about. I believe in what he lives for. I believe in what he would literally give up his life for. Thank you, Pastor. So if I make a confession and I say I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, when you call him Lord of your life, you're not just saying I believe that he existed or that he really went to Calvary. You're saying I believe in him, what his words are, what he lived for, and what he died for. And to say I believe in him and he's Lord of my life is to say I believe in every word that he has spoken. You can't separate him from his word. So when we make that confession, 
It can be legally binding if we're not false witness. But if we can look into our heart and see what do we believe, do you really believe that God, who created the heavens and the earth, so loved you that 2,000 years ago he gained to Bethlehem's manger born as a baby, walked in dusty streets of Jerusalem, went out to Calvary's hill and shed his blood because he loves you. He loves you so much he paid the price for you to be free from sin and mistake and failures of your past and not only to be freed by that, but by the power of the Holy Ghost become a new creature in Christ Jesus where old things are passed away and you've got new desires and new hopes and a new mindset. So what we have to decide today is what do we believe? Do we really believe this? Or are we just thinking this is an emotional atmosphere? We feel holy goosebumps up and down our spine. and Oh, that was good. Let's go home. Legal actions are happening. Because what's bound in earth is going to be bound in heaven. And what's loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven in the mouth of two or three eyewitnesses. Now let me show you the power of your testimony with a couple of verses, and I'm completely done. Matthew 12 and 37 says, For by your words you shall be justified, or by your words you shall be condemned. That means if you believe and you confess your faith in God, you shall be justified. If you don't believe, you shall be condemned. Of what you confess, what you confess. Revelation 12 and 11 says that they overcame the enemy by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Your testimony is legally binding to set you free from mistakes and failures of your past. So what we have to decide today is what do you believe and are you willing to speak your testimony? Stand with me all over the congregation. I'm asking pastors, prayer partners to come, those that have specifically been invited by pastor in the past couple of days to help us. I want you to come, prayer partners, and stand across this front. Lois, would you come also? These are tremendous, respected leaders in this church who not only have a powerful walk with God, but also have ministry to help others as they begin to walk with their journey with the Lord. And I'm going to ask them to stand here as someone that you can come to, to coach you, to help you. If you're not sure how to follow this law and let the Lord be in your life, they'll tell you how to repent and how to commit to be baptized in His name and how to receive this experience of the Holy Ghost that binds your salvation. Earth and in heaven. So when I give an invitation in just a moment, you'll make your way out of where you're standing and walk down to one of these that you trust or feel like that you can talk to. And there we're going to just wait a few minutes while I give instructions and then we'll let, <coughs> excuse me, then we'll let just us talk to the Lord about what we believe. You'll give your testimony, not to me, not to these, but before heaven and before God. So here's your question. The Word has made it clear. 
Christ loves you. He paid the price for all your sin, mistakes, and failures. And no matter how you've been or what dysfunctional family you was raised in or what generational curse you think that you might have been brought in, He paid the price for you at Calvary. He wants to be Lord of your life. Not just to bless you today, but if you would let Him be Lord of your life, He's going to teach you how to continue to be blessed in your relationship, in your walk of salvation, in your finance. All these things that are just a byproduct of relationship with Jesus or being in the kingdom of God. So right now, you have to decide. Do I believe? Look into your hearts right now and be a true eyewitness. What do you believe? What do I believe? And if you believe, Isaiah 53 tells us this. When the prophet prophesies, he says, uh, (laughs) ain't nobody going to believe this. King James says, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? That's speaking about the power of God. Who is going to see the power of God in their life? It answers right back to the first statement. Who believes? That's who sees the power. If you can look in your heart and say, I believe. Then it's time to make your way down to the front right now. As a sign of your confession that I believe. So here's my invitation. If you're here today. And you want God to help you in your salvation journey. Wherever you are in that. If you're just beginning or if you've been believing for a while. If you've received the Holy Ghost or you haven't. If you need help today in your salvation journey. Then if you believe, step out right now and come down and stand in front of one of these anointed speakers. One of these anointed prayer warriors. Who wants to say, I believe. And I'm ready for some help in my salvation. There they come. There you go. Go ahead and come on down. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Wherever you are on your salvation journey, if you want to confess today, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and I want him Lord of my life, then then come right now. That's a good confession to make if you believe it. There you go. Come on down. There's still more that are coming. Even stand in front of one of these. That would be good. There you go. Somebody else. I feel like somebody else needs to make a move for their salvation journey today. Beautiful. Beautiful. Now, my question is for these that are in the house today, do you have faith? You know what faith is? Hebrews 11.1 tells us. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The (laughs) Faith is evidence in the courtroom of your life. You want evidence to happen for you that you really believe? Then your step of faith to get out and come down the front. That's your evidence. I believe. Your confession is your evidence because it's a response of faith. I need to go one step further. Isaiah 53 tells us he's wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, chastised our peace upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. I don't have time to qualify this, but I can show you by the authority of the Word of God that if you're a child of God, you have legal rights to healing. It is your legal right to healing. Now, if you choose to be a disciple of Christ, pick up your cross and follow him, then you have a legal right 
to carry a cross. If you choose to follow him in ministry, you have a legal right for the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. But the overall legal right is that you have a right healing. Whose report will you believe? Those in the place that need a miracle in their physical body, would you join those that have already come down to the front? If you look into your heart and believe that God loves you and wants to heal you today, then I want you to step out and come down real quickly, real quickly. There you go. You need a miracle in your physical body, and you're a believer. You see it in your heart. Come on down. Yeah. Yes. All right. Everyone else in the place, you're just witnesses in this court. But there's a powerful testimony in your witness. If God has brought you out of the miry clay and put your feet on the rock to stay, then you're a witness of the salvation power of Jesus Christ. If he has ever healed your body, you're a witness of healing. We need a great cloud of witnesses to worship or to say that in this place today. We need you to gather behind these that have come to have a legal operation from heaven and lift up your worship or your testimony and say that God is a healer, God is a miracle worker, God is a savior. Everybody's invited. Would you come close? You've been listening to the Living Faith Everett podcast series. Tune in next week for the next part of this series or join us online at livingfaithministries.church.